Hello, everyone. So getting this started, uh, we'll take a minute or two to pull in the whole crew. Um, getting it, the whole panel of us uh, on the board as speakers and co-hosts. So yeah, you know, thank you all for joining amidst the uh, earnings drama. I know it could be more fun to just watch Snap go uh, way up, way down, way down, way up, whatever it may be. Um, but glad you're all uh, coming in. I think we'll give it like two to three minutes to give everyone an opportunity who wants to be here from the beginning to get in, but also know that we are recording this. And you'll be able to listen after the fact. So uh, Twitter's got a nice interface for that. But we'll probably also get this out on uh, the podcast this week in intelligent investing. Maybe uh, you know, any any maybe anywhere else that we could um, think it's timely to be talking about this stuff. Didn't exactly uh, know what would happen though. The second Netflix print hit, I had a feeling we'd be exactly uh, where we are, somewhere where we are today. Um. So I think maybe we have enough people in here to at least get the ball rolling, let others come in. We'll still do our intros. You know, I'm here with uh, Jason Moser from The Motley Fool. Great guy, uh, really looking forward to hearing some of his perspective in the space. Um, Mario Sabelli, sure you all uh, have seen Mario's presence on Twitter as well, uh, but great guy as well and uh, excited to have him. And Mike Nongap, like the expert in governance, joining us to add his lens as well. Uh, Mike's going to go ahead and read a brief disclaimer, and then I'll introduce the, the topic here, and we'll get going. Hey, guys. A uh, little WCM housekeeping here. Uh, the securities identified described do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended for client accounts. The listeners should not assume that an investment in the securities identified was or will be profitable. That's all I got. All right. Thank you for doing that and getting the formalities out of the way. So, you know, let's get rolling. You know, it's really hard to know to what extent any one stock that's had a very rough year is part of this broader basket of COVID winners now turned losers or whether that company made strategic missteps along the way. Uh, but one of the things that has become clear in this environment is share price declines do actually alter the trajectory of the company. And they create opportunities for investors willing to step in, willing to own some growth on the cheap. And they create questions for management that they need to consider, some questions that are pretty hard. Um, so I've personally, you know, to add my disclosure, I am long shares of PayPal. I possibly overstayed my welcome, but I've had one North Star from the beginning and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, more later on, but I've long believed that so long as engagement's trending higher, and I'm sure you've heard, if you if you've followed me, you've seen me tweet it, or you've heard me say it on the podcast, whatever, that so long as engagement's trending higher, that's the flywheel of PayPal because it encourages more merchants to accept PayPal, encourages uh, more opportunities to engage and adds more value so that more people want to come use the product. Um, but they did get a little in their own way trying to push uh, new actives and maintain some of the momentum from COVID. Um, so one of the first things from the beginning of uh, uh, when I've spoken to PayPal and some other times that I've tried to speak with other people about the company, you know, I've been saying, why don't you all um, improve disclosure and add some sort of color? And I, I, I've, to 
further add context, I've owned shares through the split from eBay. So from the very beginning, I'm saying, show us engagement across cohorts. Tell us what the most engaged users look like and talk to us about how the average user will be walked up to being the equivalent of the most engaged user and talk to us about how the most engaged user will be even more engaged. Um, so, you know, we've yet to see any disclosure on that front. And when they held that investor day in February, 2021, you know, they sent out a long survey and I responded with, Hey, why, I, I love the message generally, but why not any talk about engagement? That should have been your central theme, et cetera. Um, so that's my brief introduction. I want to open it up to you other guys to add your own intro and, you know, maybe some of your most important points you want to hit on. Um, I can go first. Um, and in fair disclosure, we're, uh, our, our firm is long PayPal and we've been a shareholder, you know, since, since day one, uh, continuously. And, um, you know, we, I think all of us here have uh, a little bit of a, a different uh, view on things. So hopefully it'd be a, a good discussion, but I guess personally, you know, I think PayPal stock price performance is, is potentially presenting a, a new opportunity for the company to break from its most recent past. You know, we, you know, the company is born of kind of a, you know, an activist playbook, you know, to some extent, you know, you had the summer of 2015 spinoff from eBay. You had uh, the summer of 2016 piece with the credit card associations that helped create a multi-year tailwind uh, that, you know, um, had, had some great, great results. Um, and it, it culminated in kind of the great COVID acceleration of 2020. You know, and since then, you know, we've, we've seen some cracks um, and it's really started to show some, um, you know, on, on growth rates. And, um, you know, to me, um, the, the share price, um, which has been, look, it's an ugly, it's an ugly stock chart. That's for sure. Um, I think it's, it's also potentially opening up a pretty big opportunity to focus on uh, internal value creation. Um, I'm hitting some of the, the, I have a number of points to think about, but I'll hit upon the bigger, the biggest ones, internal value creation, um, better disclosure for investors and in, in margin expansion. Um, you know, I, my instinct is, is that it's, it's probably time to toss the old playbook out um, at PayPal and, and start a new one. And in a, you know, bizarre, ironic way, I guess. I think the recent disappointments and ugly stock chart are going to make the organization stronger over the long term. I think there's that opportunity. Um, and I know, uh, you know, you could say, hey, there's lots of competition. There's been lots of competition for a long time. Maybe it's getting particularly pointed right now, but I just I'll end with a base underlying assumption that I have um, is that PayPal is still a very unique extremely hard to replicate assets. It's a platform neutral two-sided brand and payments provider with a massive base of active users that value its core checkout services. So I still think that uh, d despite in uh, more intense competition, buy now, pay later, more buttons, Amazon's announcement today, notwithstanding everything, that it still holds a very unique space in the ecosystem. And my, you know, my hope and expectation is, is that the recent uh, decline is, is going to open up an opportunity for, for some real change here. And I'll, uh, I'll stop there. 
I'll jump in here real quick. Um, I'm Jason Moser and with Molly Fool, and um, I've been following PayPal for essentially uh, since the the spinoff. Um, it's a company we've recommended in a number of our services at work. Uh, one that I own personally, one that I've recommended in uh, one of my services as well. Um, and and I think you know Mario and I get to talk a pretty good bit about it, uh, among other things. I, and I tend to. I tend to agree with him for, you know, while this is a, a very difficult time, you know, you see a business like this that the blunders are really self-inflicted, right? I mean, it does feel like much of this is self-inflicted, which leads me to believe that it's fairly correctable. Um, it does feel like, and we've seen this, I think, with a number of management teams uh, over the past couple of years. We've seen in the past, uh, you know, you brought up Netflix and it just kind of made me think of Netflix's little hiccups along the way, like the quick store moment and whatnot. It feels like sometimes management uh, can, can maybe buy a little bit too much into their own hype. And they feel like, you know, things are going so well that they're not really um, keeping, keeping their eye on the ball, so to speak. And it, and it feels like maybe that's, it feels like maybe that's where this management team had gotten. Uh, maybe, maybe they felt like uh, things were going so well that we, we could just take them at their word and, uh, everything would be fine. But, you know, this most recent quarter for me, one of the things, I mean, to, to, to Mario's point about this this large network, this massive network of users, I mean, that there really is something to that. I mean, you've, you've got this, what, 426 million they announced in the most recent quarter. But I think to me, that was also the story in that they noted really it, it is such a, it, it's a smaller swath of that large user base that's really responsible for most of their money. And and so you you getting getting I think more clarity on engagement, power users versus regular users. I mean, we hear a lot of this talk about the super app, but you're not really seeing they're not really painting the picture of what that super app means and ultimately what they're trying to do with it. But you've got this collection of really impressive businesses in PayPal, uh, in Venmo, and then and then also Zoom. Which you know, Mario, Mario and I have a, have a funny background on Zoom as well. We we were following that that business, I think, pretty much from its inception until PayPal stole it for a song, um, and now you just don't really hear much about it anymore. And, and now you've got a company out there in Remitly where it feels like you're hearing more about Remitly than you're hearing about Zoom. And and I mean, outbound remittance is just a tremendous market, um, and and so it does feel like the disclosure breaking things out to give us an idea of, of how each facet of the business is performing, I think it'd be really helpful. Um, because I, you know, I, I will say, and then I'll, I'll hand this off, but one thing I, one thing I had been digging into just over the past several years, you know, you look at a business like this and you look at their take rate because that's ultimately uh, something that, that matters a lot, right? I mean, they're pushing through $1 trillion plus uh, through that network. And, and ultimately, you want to understand where that take rate is, because it does feel like the long-term dynamics of this market, you know, the costs of moving money for the for the most part seem to be just continuing to come down. I mean, you look at the end of the fourth quarter in 2017 for PayPal, the total take rate was 3%. Uh, well, in the fourth quarter of 2021, their total take rate was 2.04%. Um, so, so it is something I think to at least keep in mind and if we can understand exactly what's dictating that and where the opportunities may exist, I think that probably uh, gives a little bit more clarity and understanding where they're trying to go. Uh, but I'll leave it there and, and hand it off. So I think I'm in charge of governance. Uh, I just wanted to hang out with y'all. 
um, and, and jam. Uh, I think more candidly, I'm probably on because uh, I, I'm prone to speak more freely and may or may not throw a grenade here or there. Um, I think high level, uh, how do we think about this? You know, in general, whether it's PayPal or any other company, and I would say this is probably the case for a lot of these kind of growth um, uh, companies across you know uh, the board. You know, you've spent the last few years kind of this, you know, go for growth, you're rewarded on, you know, expanding your addressable markets and exploring all these different opportunities. And, um, you know, you get into these sort of market environments where that isn't exactly rewarded and, and you're moving towards more of a, a cash flow, disciplined, you know, thoughtful capital allocation sort of perspective. And you know, I think, you know, in general, when you think about kind of that deleverage, whether, you know, fundamental deleverage, but also just kind of market um, environment, you know, getting an organization to kind of shift from one mindset to the other is, is quite hard. Um, and then you kind of roll that up to kind of the boardroom. It's quite difficult. Um, and, you know, someone like PayPal, who I would say is probably considered, you know, prior to the last you know, few quarters, kind of one of those white shoes, high quality sort of, you know, businesses that you know, a lot of folks would want to be on the board on. Um, and, and you certainly see that with the directors that are on the board, uh, you know, Anytime you're in a situation where you're going from cruise control to, uh, how do I want to describe this, to essentially a cannonball run, so to speak, where there, there's a lot of things that need to be addressed. There's a lot of hard decisions that have to be uh, put in. Um, it takes a certain mindset. This is why a lot of directors kind of hate, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it a turnaround, but no one wants to take on these hard decisions. No one wants to. Uh, really put in that level of work um, relative to kind of what they signed up for, if you will. I'm not saying anyone at PayPal feels this way. This is kind of in general. Um, you know, I, I think as you think forward over the next you know, few months, uh, you know, there, there are fundamental factors in play. And, um, you know, from a governance perspective, there, there's certainly some areas where, you know, they, they need to address some compensation and probably, you know, board composition sort of, you know, dynamics that you know, we may or may not get into here. But, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that you know, this particular name and, and the leadership here, like you, you probably should have some level of concern for activism, for, you know, something, you know, potentially happening later in the year. I'm not saying I know anything about that, but, you know, I, I've, I've been been through enough rodeos to know that these sort of assets don't typically um, get ignored <laughs> by activists, especially at these valuations. So happy to dive in from there, but uh, all yours, Elliot. All right. Yeah, no. So good to get started. Thank you guys each for sharing your perspective. And I should have said at the top, you know, once we go through our stuff, we'll open this up for Q&A and let you all listening uh, ask some questions or share some perspective as well. Um, I think this is a good uh, launching point. And we had a couple bullet points outlined that we'd kind of hit on uh, from improved just in how they could improve disclosures to uh, what the M&A and internal growth focus should look like down to culture. Um, so maybe, Mario, do you want to talk about some disclosures at first? Yeah, I think uh, I'd like to. And, you know, um, I'm going to attempt not to toss any grenades. We'll let, we'll let Mike do that. Um, but but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to speak freely here. Um, and and I, I do think the company is, you know, <laughs> I think it's quite clearly at some, some crossroads. 
And um, I, I, I do think that the quality of the asset, even though it's a controversial long, it's a controversial company, you know, I guess at least on FinTwit, it seems to be. Um, I, do, I, I do think there is a body of investors that consider it a, a pretty high quality asset. And, you know, we were kind of joking around a little bit before about, um, you know, the current market dynamics, you know, it is a gap earner. Um, and it, it does generate a lot of free cash. So it, 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 it is not, you know, a future profit pool um, that, you know, uh, that you have to wonder about is, is there profitability there? Of course, you have to worry about the growth rate and all that kind of stuff and uh, rising competition. But it does it, it has one foot squarely in the gap earnings camp, which is which is kind of an interesting dynamic here. But on the, the there's a couple major pieces, you know, I, um, you know, I do think the refocus on organic growth and innovation is very important. But, you know, arguably, number one or number two, between that and improved disclosure, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know which one kind of to, to say, which is most important, I would say, improved disclosure um, is, 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 well, it's, they're going to be one or two. And, and, and improving disclosure uh, is not the most difficult thing to do. Uh, having the company tilt towards more rapid innovation and product improvement, you know, um, can't fully be controlled, but improved disclosure can be. So I'd say maybe we'll put it at the number, the number one topic here, almost to some extent, which is things that can be done uh, to better uh, investor understanding of the business and what's going on. And, and I'll be, you know, specific. So I don't think personally, I I don't think it ever made much sense to commingle the consumer checkout services with merchant processing services. And I, I think, um, you know, that was acceptable because the bottom line result, including, you know, the gap results were attractive enough and ahead in the right direction that no one really gave them too much of a hard time about it. I, I do think at this point um, there needs to be a break that investors need to, uh, and I'm not going to be so, so specific on this because there's some complexity to it, but generally speaking, I would kind of say, the, you know, the core consumer checkout services and the merchant merchant processing services, those should be broken out both in revenues and with some operating expense breakout to give us an idea of what those businesses look like. I think um, much better bucketing on TPV, um, <clears throat> um, you know, and whether that's a one-time kind of look at, at, at a point in time or if that's a continuing look, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I think they owe shareholders uh, a much better look into how that is segmented, you know, across remittance, across peer-to-peer, across core checkout services and and kind of merchant processing. Monthly active users, I think, kind of makes sense at this point. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll say this last point on improved disclosures, you know, in the form of a question. You know, is it time to drop the non-GAAP earnings? Uh, non-GAAP may have an opinion on that. Uh, we'll see. Um, ignoring stock-based compensation, you know, naturally desensitizes one to it. And it's it's a real cost. Um, we all know that SBC is a real expense. And I think PayPal is, is mature enough now that it may be time to drop that. Now, that's, it shouldn't be that controversial. They give both GAAP and non-GAAP, but there's a continual kind of uh, emphasis of, on, non, on non-GAAP numbers. And, uh, you know, look, over time, the, it's very important to leverage all 
all all lines in the uh, uh, operating expenses, including SBC. So I, I I asked that in the form of a question. I think it it, it may be time. So I, I think this is a, it, it's just it's a very very critical topic. It's very it's not the most difficult thing to get right. I think it's far more difficult for the company to innovate and, and come up with a much better product that you know kind of. Uh, helps uh, drive earnings that way. So this is something that it's kind of a, a relatively easy thing to do, and they'll have to decide exactly what they want to give and how much of a look they want to give. But it also, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the, the company, I, I believe, has referenced Nick shift a number of time on margins. And if, if this is done right, well, they should be able to make clear that on core consumer checkout services, you know, additional volume through over those rails should come in you know, more profitably, uh, and then you don't have to worry about the mix on that side. So I, I do think this is a, a critical area. I think it's a it's a must do. And my instinct would be, you know, is is the company, um, you know, I think, I think they're signaling this and discussing this with shareholders that they're that they're very open to, to doing this. And those, so those are some specific things. To, you know, anyone else? Did I miss anything on uh, what would it? additional disclosures should be or leave anything out or what some of the ramifications of that may be? Yeah, I mean, maybe to give more color from PayPal on to what extent um, the button is the source of action in a given transaction, because that's truly where they add unique value. Uh, it always latched on to this ready quote that what they're selling is conversion, uh, not commoditized payments. And that's where they're most differentiated. But I'd really also personally wail away at this notion that they should really disclose like the level of engagement in their user base across cohorts and get a clear sense because PayPal's been controversial from the first day I used the company and what a lot first day I invest in the company because a lot of people fundamentally don't understand why there's value for a certain. Why, why the user base sees it as valuable. There are some people that question why PayPal needs to exist. People question button proliferation, et cetera. And meanwhile, there's a group of users out there. And I like that you said, uh, disclose MAUs, Mario, because that's especially uh, enlightening. But there's a group of users out there who fundamentally rely on PayPal. And they do so for a confluence of reasons. Many people start with something like security and ease and trust, um, but the reasons start multiplying and that creates opportunities for PayPal to develop product around it too, or to formulate incentives. One of the other ideas that I'd questioned and pushed them on is this notion that, you know, every great, um, in many great marketplaces grease the wheels of one side of their user base. And PayPal is unique as a payment platform where they have both consumers and merchants. And if you understood why the most engaged uh, users do so accordingly, you could start studying and doing things like um, pay your Netflix a uh, monthly bill with PayPal, and we'll give you one month free if you set us as your default payment mechanism. And what do you get? Well, you get, you know, good frequency, frequency that's basically what, what was there when PayPal shortly before PayPal was spun off. Um, and you get this like trust and build motion. And, you know, they've been reluctant to use rewards, which is something I think a lot of people see as core to 
um, any payments experience today. So with disclosure, you could start telling these stories and paint better pictures. And I think you'd have a very fundamentally different approach to strategy than you would without having to talk about these things. And I think to an extent, um, there's an arrogance behind not disclosing these numbers uh, where when things are going well, you don't really have to talk about these things. You don't have to show a little more. But when things are not going as well, um, you know, I think you do have to consider that. And, you know, I'll, I'll stop now, Jason. I thought you had something to add as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're I think you're spot on there. I mean, I, I, it reminds me and I'm going to give Mario the, the the hat tip here because this is a hack that he taught me uh, some time ago that is just really helpful. But talking about using PayPal to pay for, you know, your Netflix or whatever it may be. And I, one thing that Mario taught me was you essentially you just any subscription that you have, virtually everything that you can run through your PayPal account do that because you can centralize it all so it's all going through that paypal account and just whatever you're whatever you're paying through that like i have my my primary payment is linked to my visa amazon prime card and, but the point is that like when that card expires you don't have to go to 10 different websites to update your payment information you can just update it at that one core paypal hub um but but to the, to the point on on disclosure i mean i think that's i think that's spot on i mean i think there's a level of arrogance that comes with with not disclosing stuff like that particularly when you become more things right i mean it's not just paypal anymore like there are a lot of moving parts to this business and so you know if you, if you look back through the history of earnings calls i mean analysts typically have to kind of go in there in in during the q a make make some some guesses on where engagement is is doing well and where it where it's underperforming and even then management not necessarily all that forth forthright with the information that they're giving and so you know if you're if you're going to tap this super app that can do all of these different things well it only seems reasonable to then say well this is how all of these different things are doing right because paypal is something we all kind of know but there's this you know there's this other facet to the business that, that the younger generation's coming up on and venmo and I mean, at, at what point, you know, does Venmo become sort of, you know, the Instagram of Facebook, right? I mean, at what point is Venmo now really the core part of this business, if, if it ever is? Uh, you, want, you want to have a better idea of, of, how, of how that's all working together. And, and I mean, obviously, Zoom, uh, you've got Honey in there. I mean, you don't really ha hear, hear much on how all of these pieces are coming together, um, and, and then just, you know, one final point, I think on, on the, the share repurchases, it, it is, it is, I mean, I, I think we're always going to be living in kind of a non-GAAP world, but I mean, to that point, just looking at, at the, the share count, I mean, the share count since the end of 2016 is down three and a half percent. It's down, they brought, they, they brought it down by about 40, 42.6 million shares and they spent $14.7 billion dollars. So, like, if you do the math there, you can see what they're now. There's some acquisitions, of course, along the way where, uh, where that where that was impacted, and certainly stock based compensation. But it is it is all to say that, you know, you you can make the argument that these share repurchases haven't necessarily been terribly opportunistic or rewarding, uh, where where maybe they they could have you know taken a little bit of a different view. Um, and I guess one thing I kind of want to pass this to Mike just to get his opinion because it, it to me you know, talking about activism, it almost feels like that is, it almost feels like that is sort of a, 
you know, it, it's almost, it, it, I don't want to say it makes this a risk-free situation, but it's almost like the worst case scenario. If, they, if management continues bungling this, I mean, an activist comes in here to try to change things around. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine PayPal, the stock suffering from someone coming in there and really finally calling management on what it's been doing. I don't know, Mike, if you have any opinion on that. Opinions. Uh, I, I might have a few opinions. I, I mean, I guess maybe just to like summarize this whole like, you know, section about disclosure, improving disclosure. So what, like, what's the point of improving disclosure? And like, for me, at the end of the day, you know, if the best way to have proper oversight and accountability is, you know, disclosing the things that, you know, investors and, and, and ideally the board, you know, cares about that, that actually drives value that they're the key levers and, Yes, you can get away with kind of hiding certain you know metrics and, and 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 numbers when things are going well, and sometimes you might even do it for competitive reasons. Uh, if if things are you know doing exceptional, you don't want others to know. But you know if if you're in this kind of situation, and you know hypothetically, you know if, if an activist were on the board, um, this you know disclosure would probably be one of the first things they would ask in the sense of trying to better understand what are kind of puts and takes of the core you know, and, and key assets within, within this business. And, and, I'll, and I'll, maybe I'll, I'll wrap up with just a very, very generalized story uh, about activism in, in the boardroom. And, and it's, you know, most people think it's, you know, magic and, and you know, you're doing this hard differentiated sort of work, but oftentimes what it is, is you're just kind of addressing the obvious. And, and what I mean is if you're frustrated as an investor with like poor disclosures and, and you know, you're not getting the right information, um, odds are the board isn't really getting that much more insight on things. Because if you're, if, if you're communicating certain things to the street, um, board's probably getting something similar. And, you know, it isn't uncommon to enter a board situation and ask for something like, hey, can you give me customer level profitability uh, on, on these different businesses? And, it, and that's a question that literally would never be asked in the boardroom, you would think they would ask, but you know, there is kind of this inertia to not kind of point out the obvious for a whole host of different reasons. But, um, you know, the first step to, you know, driving more accountability and oversight, it starts with what are the right sort of metrics being disclosed? Um, I, I guess to the point of like non-GAAP versus GAAP earnings, um, you know, it, it's, I, I kind of go back and forth on it. I'm I'm okay with non-GAAP as long as well. Obviously, I'm okay with non-GAAP, but you know, I think that there are probably other ways to drive more alignment and, and accountability. Just you, know, you can you can certainly use a non-GAAP number, um, especially if you're tying your compensation in a fair and reasonable way. But like you know, on the flip side, I mean, these guys were using your free cash flow Kager as as a compensation metric, which you know, objectively is pretty decent it's not bad you know to use free cash flow um and you would think that would help drive you know long-term value but if if you're setting your free cash flow kager to you know what's their last tranche you know four percent target five percent two hundred percent payout like okay i i would rather you address that versus trying to sort out gap versus non-gap at this point there are actually much bigger issues to address potentially from a comp and governance perspective but you know oftentimes it does start with you know, what are, what are the appropriate metrics we should be prioritizing? And then, you know, start, you know, start implementing kind of the, uh, the right set of, you know, incentives and, and oversight at the board level to you know, kind of drive that alignment. 
Yeah, I just got to make a comment here. You know, I'm 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 uh, probably the biggest super user here. If there's anyone in this space that does more transactions for me on PayPal per month, I'd be I'd be shocked. So I want everyone to kind of behave like me. And it was kind of, as Jason said, serendipitous that I discovered this little bit of a hack because of a situation I had with a credit card where it took me two two and a half months to fully replicate kind of a, my new form of payment after a, a fraud. So I kind of came to the conclusion <clears throat> with PayPal, my PayPal wallet, doesn't cost me anything. And um, it provides uh, an added layer of security and benefit. And in some circumstances, the case where I want to swap one card to another, it's, it's, it's an absolute home run. So I, I, would, I, I would be among PayPal's most active users. And then as, as uh, we were talking about before, on the innovation side, essentially, and the management, you know, kind of talked about this on, on the last call, how to get more of the active users to engage like the super active users, you know, and, 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 and just my instinct is, and this might get into a little bit of a different topic with, with the company's focus historically on, you know, a lot of M&A, and they do look at a ton of deals um, that, you know, that the, the, the mindset to think really hard about how to get the active users to behave more like the super active users, including loyalty, including maybe preferential kind of treatment for high frequency apps such as Uber or uh, uh, Seamless, Grubhub, uh, DoorDash uh, or Rideshare, Uber. I won't mention Uber's competitor. I'm, I'm an Uber fan. Um, that, that those should be high priority things. And, you know, I do wonder sometimes if, if you know, if the company has been as focused on, uh, internal innovation um, and getting people uh, the active to behave, you know, um, like the most active users, you know, it just, it, it's almost natural that, that that gets a little bit of less of a look than it would otherwise for a team that is very focused uh, on M&A and being a super app and adding, you know, maybe some other kinds of services that are a bit off the core um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm opening myself up to some criticism there because, you know, the company, you know, the company has clearly added some elements to, to its wallet that, that has driven engagement. Um, but I, I do think, you know, you know, a, a very important feature here potentially is that, you know, PayPal is going to have to figure out how to grow internally uh, without relying on external M&A, much more so than it has, you know, over the past six to seven years. I think that is a potentially very good thing. I don't think things like that, you know, uh, what's in the DNA and what's in the culture, it doesn't turn on a dime, um, but that could be a very, very valuable thing uh, to lean into here. Well, and Mario, to your point, I mean, I, I do think there's signs at least that they, they have, I mean, obviously they have the ability to innovate and, and to, to make things happen relatively quickly. I mean, you look at their buy now, pay later um, offering, right? I mean, I, I, I think, of course, they they made an acquisition there in Payday, which I think is based in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, I mean, they, they were talking about, you know, they, they essentially built this sort of homegrown BNPL offering that uh, pushed through $3.2 billion of total payment volume over the last over the last quarter. So it, it was, I mean, I found that encouraging for, as you said, a company that is 
has a history of making acquisitions and kind of not necessarily focusing on growing so organically. I mean, it was it was encouraging at least to see they were they were able to experiment and sort of build that from the ground up to an extent at least and 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 witness some success. Now, I mean, I guess it's it remains to be seen exactly how the BNPL market shakes out. Um, I'm not entirely sure there, but uh, you know, another, another thing that we were talking about this morning was this this Amazon news of the you know the the buy with Prime. Which ultimately extends that that prime shopping benefits to the the third the third party partners with Amazon, um, and I you know I was just thinking about how this could be this could be an incremental benefit for something like a PayPal because you know they're they're incorporating that Venmo payment option, and ultimately you know and, and it depends on how this buy with Prime feature rolls out, but you could certainly see. Um, you know, folks who use use their Venmo as their primary payment option for their Amazon purchases. I mean, if that extends out to to you know many more partners beyond just Amazon, I mean, there there's certainly the potential there for for some incremental benefit as well. And it, it just kind of maybe think greater, bigger picture. Like you, we've seen PayPal kind of extricating itself from this relationship with eBay, which. His, his, you know, I think was was the right thing to do. Obviously, but it'll it'll be interesting to see if we're not talking about further down the road, them, you know, partnering up more with, with something like an Amazon. I mean, that that might not necessarily be such a bad thing, um, given given Amazon scale and obviously the, the size of its third party network as well. Yeah, no, some really good points, guys, and you know, I think. Um, part of why the next chapter was an appealing title is like no longer being uh, in the relationship, the, the post split relationship with eBay gives them a degree of freedom they hadn't had before. But I want to hit on some of these innovation points, because to me, this is a critical factor that the management team needs to focus on. And, you know, all the credit in the world for BNPL, I view that as fast copying more so than outright innovation. And it's great because they have, massive distribution on both sides, consumer and merchant. So use that scale and push it out there. Exactly what you'd want to see. Good. Um, Bitcoin, you know, they got there fairly fast in a relative sense, perhaps. Um, but I think what they did interestingly fast uh, was to actually use Bitcoin as a funding instrument. I think that's a good start. But otherwise, I've viewed innovation as a somewhat critical uh, I don't. I don't want to use the fa word failure, but critical um, uh, missed opportunity for PayPal. And there are some signs it's getting better. But I want to hit on a little of the history here. So when Shulman first took over, he used this story about how the scale of technology enables you to drive costs down in areas the financial industry has historically overcharged, especially those who are underbanked, and. You know, his, I think it was very second transaction. So not Zoom, but the second one was TO Networks. And both Zoom and TO, TO have like a very close nexus to this theme. Um, the problem was TO itself had to be shut down within a year of acquiring it because they missed in their diligence a critical security failing. And Zoom took a lot longer to integrate technologically than, they, than they'd expected. But otherwise, it was actually Square in the cash app that started innovating. And if you look at the relative demographics of cash app versus core PayPal blue or 
versus Venmo in particular, Square's actually won with underbanked constituencies doing so directly with product innovation. And I'd recently spoken with a former executive uh, based in an emerging market, and he said one of the critical failings of PayPal and his market in particular was this idea that the development at the company had been centralized in San Francisco. And to actually succeed in a lot of these markets, they need a hybrid development model. And that would actually facilitate even better innovation because you'd have uh, people on the ground in a variety of areas sensitive to technological changes, regulatory shifts, and product development that can be um, co-opted and not co opted wrong word, co-opted, but to, that can be learned about and deployed across all of PayPal, not necessarily just in those geographies. Um, so I'd say, you know, in those three ways, I've been pretty disappointed in PayPal's innovation. Um, this talk about a super app, I'd really rather them use the phrase, we want to be a uh, even neobank or a, a fully functional, so going beyond a digital wallet, but being like a, a bank on your phone, um, more so than, than just a super app. That would be my preference. And I think that would be a better narrative and it would be more logical in terms of the kind of product vectors you need to explore and you wouldn't end up in this, oh, should they or shouldn't they buy Pinterest? Um, despite some of the thoughts I tweeted out at the time, but you'd have a much more singular clean focus on uh, going down the um, building functional financial product to drive costs down with the scale of technology, Shulman's original mission, which you know I'd li like to see more on. So that's my spiel on innovation. Yeah, I, 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 I think innovation is, uh, it's, it's, it's so important here. And, um, I, I, you know, my instinct is the company is going to start pointing, you know, in the right direction. And, you know, look, I, I think, um, de-emphasizing M&A, especially large scale and non-core transactions is, is, is part and parcel with that, um, I, 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 I just think, I, just, I don't think you could deny that um, with, with, with such a, you know, intense focus on, on M&A over the years and think of how many deals they pass on and look at and think about hard that they don't actually end up doing. It has to come at some cost to the organization in terms of, of innovation uh, and internal growth. They, have, they, they do have a massive uh, opportunity here, uh, in, in my opinion. So I... I, uh, we, Elliot and I, and I, you, you and I have riffed back and forth some on loyalty in transitioning to super users. Of course, management signaled this again. Um, <clears throat> don't pay as much attention to NNAs. You know, we have this, you know, super active user base and we, we need to figure out how to make more of them, um, you know, from the monthly actives and push them into the, the, this very super active category. I, I think that is is so important. It's, it, it could make all the difference in the world, uh, and I and I think when the organization really gets focus on that and buys into that, and then there's incentives uh, around that, that it, it it could make for you know just a great great outcome over time. Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this uh, free cash flow target and perhaps some of the misalignment that's going on with PayPal's incentive structure and maybe what a better board could do or would look like in this case. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to say a better board because I think oftentimes boards um, 
uh, kind of know what needs to happen and um, will often not address it again for a whole host of reasons. But um, you know, when I think about like incentives and 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 you know, kind of how that drives certain outcomes. Again, like when when a company is doing well, most folks aren't going to pay attention to these things. But you know, second, there's a you know, step down in, in performance or you know, a massive sell-off. Suddenly, everything is scrutinized, right? And that's kind of the nature of the uh, the beast, so to speak, right? You're either fat and happy, or you're 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 broken up and in the gym and and on a diet, so to speak. So, you know, when when you think about like you know, Shulman, Shulman gets paid quite a bit of money. I, I think that's kind of fair to um, say. And obviously, when you kind of compare them to peer groups. You know, they would say it's in line, but you know, one of the things I like to check when it comes to um, is is this board and management team kind of aligned, but also like, is there a fair level of like accountability going on? Is is to really compare, you know, what what are sort of the the kind of outlook or guidance they're they're offering to you know investors, and, and what how does that compare to? you know, how management is, is paid. And in general, you kind of want that aligned in, in the sense that if, if a management team is saying they, they plan to grow, let's say, you know, 16, 17, 18% over the next you know, three to five years, you would hope their target comp is tied to that sort of, you know, um, transparent disclosure. Uh, oftentimes, and, and this is a personal kind of anecdote in, in my experience, um, you, you get these dynamics where, uh, you know, this, the management team will share certain metrics. So in this case, you know, I think I'm looking at, which I'll, I'll actually use a real example here. So PayPal, right? So you think about like the 2018 to 2020, you know, performance-based RCUs. Um, half of it's tied to kind of revenue Kager and the other half is tied to free cash flow Kager. And, you know, this was around the time that, you know, the company was you know, sharing some you know, three to five year kind of growth outlooks. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Elliot, but I believe they were kind of guiding you know, I think, what, like 17, 18, um, you know, percent sort of uh, growth. Yep. And, you know, free cash flow yield, I think, was supposed to be like 20 plus percent. Uh, so when you when you kind of back into that, um, your free cash flow kicker that, you know, off that yield would have it like signaled like a, I want to say like a 30 percent sort of um, you know, growth guide. And so when you kind of look at the tranche that aligns with that guidance, um, their target was 14% revenue Kager and their free cash flow Kager is 29%. Okay, that's that's fair. Uh, but when when you look at kind of the 200% payout for that equity, it's at 16% versus kind of that's, you know, it, you know, below kind of what they were already guiding to to the market. Um, and then uh, free cash flow Kager was kind of in line with the, the free cash flow yield guide and so when you get the in these dynamics where this is our kind of targeted growth and we get paid out at 200 percent um mind you i don't mind seeing management teams get rewarded for their execution but that's sort of like misalignment where hey the markets can start pricing in these sort of like trajectories and outlooks and if, if you don't execute against that like you potentially get these you know meaningful haircuts you know whatever that might be 20 30 maybe even cut in half and despite that, you then still end up in this dynamic where, you know, management team still gets paid, you know, a hundred plus percent on, on their targets because their targets are, you know, below what they're even stating. And kind of that misalignment, I know it's like, 
what's the big deal is often what I get uh, from folks in the past when I point this out. And, and the big deal is when, when you allow um, a comp structure to be set up that way, it's kind of signaling certain things as far as, you know, how, how management and the board are working together. But also this goes back to accountability, right? It just goes back to proper oversight. If you're telling the street one thing, but getting paid, you know, below, below those levels, you know, hitting numbers below those levels that it just creates this, you know, distortive effect, um, you know, that might not show itself when things are good, but, you know, when, um, you know, things get bad, it, 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 it becomes pretty obvious. And I mean, and then the other issue too, is, you know, the consistency of the, the hurdles being applied. So, you know, we're talking, you know, 2018 to 2020 being, let's say 29%, 30% CAGR, and then like the following year's tranche, um, free cash flow CAGR, you know, threshold was 3% and you got paid 200% at 5% free cash flow CAGR. First of all, like low single digit um, free cash flow CAGR just seems kind of, there, there's a lot of room to kind of, um, I guess, uh, gaming is not the right word, but you start wondering like, why, why even, why even bother using free cash flow CAGR at that point? Like, this is certainly indicating there's some sort of investment. There's something else that maybe will be a more appropriate metric to measure the management team against versus, oh, by the way, if you hit 4% free cash flow CAGR, you get you know, target payout. But if you, you go from 4 to 5%, we're going to double your payout. Like that, that range, first of all, is weird. Um, and, it, and it's just kind of like unusually tight. Like who... Like, like if you're on the board, if you're on the comp committee, like how do you even like debate that? How do you even have a proper conversation about like what's appropriate? You know, well, our last year's grant was tied to 29% CAGR, and now it's 4%. You know, um, that that's kind of a weird what thing to you know talk about, and then that alone starts you know forcing to ask questions as far as okay, well your target is you know 20, let's say 20 million, but if you're getting paid 200% on that, like maybe it's closer to you know, all in, your all income is actually closer to 30 to 40 million off some pretty, you know, like achievable hurdles here. Um, that the, So when I talk about like, you know, gap versus non-gap or all the different metrics, like sometimes it's not the metrics, but like what you're holding, like what the actual target is that you're holding the management team against. And if, if you're doing these sort of, you know, incentives and, you know, like in general, this is something that like, the proxy advisors and ESG folks don't really like hammer these folks on, but it's, um, you know, from an investor perspective, like you should be voting against this sort of structure period. Like this actually should not be something that um, is, is uh, encouraged, but it is when things are good, but you know, you could make an argument that, you know, you should vote against, you know, the chair of the comp committee uh, on, on these sort of you know, dynamics or at the very least, you know, hey, let's have it more aligned with what you're telling the street. And, you know, that requires, you know, paying out more compensation um, at Target than, than so be it. But at least it's aligned. They're not going to do that because then Glass-Lewis is going to, um, you know, NISS are going to give them a hard time on burn rates and, you know, comp numbers. But again, this is one of those things that a lot of companies do to kind of get around um, the burn and, and kind of gross dollar headline numbers. I mean, he's getting paid 32 million or something, I think a total comp. But if, I think if you're actually going to use the kind of whispered target comp that they're trying to give this guy, it's probably closer to 40, 45, right? So, 
and that would be pretty, <laughs> you know, the headline's pretty egregious, but like, yeah, they're, they're doing it in a way where they don't have to disclose the actual number they're trying to pay, pay out this person. Um, but even having that philosophy, even having that kind of like mentality can be quite, you know, um, if you're an investor, that could be very like concerning that you're, you're even entertaining that sort of mindset, uh, you know, in, in, in your comp committee, if you will, even if you're just trying to like get around certain, you know, ISS or Glass-Lewis metrics. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's always in the incremental loopholes that you're trying to like, you know, get around stuff that, that you learn a lot about management teams and boards. But I'll stop there because I could probably spend the next two hours talking about how everyone needs to probably like refresh this board potentially. But I was just going to say, Mike, you know, the uh, the payment payment CEOs aren't aren't, you know, they're they're not known for being underpaid, you know, and so that's certainly uh, you know get gets uh, get someone's uh, attention here. Um, and I do think the results, you know, have, over time have been so good that, you know, there probably hasn't been a, uh, a ton of focus there. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, like the, the quality of the asset, uh, what, what you're saying, uh, the recent, uh, um, you know, decline in valuation and, and the share price, um, two quarters in a row of bringing down numbers, you know, maybe three, hopefully not. Yes, there are external factors, but it is all adding up, you know, to create an environment. Um, we have a single class of shares here. You know, I do, I would, I would say for sure there's some vulnerability here, um, you know, to, to, to an activist or a suggestivist or someone that, you know, may, may have a, a different view you know, my instinct would be is that the, the management team um, would, would would have a sense of this, would understand that. And, you know, I do think, um, you know, that that it, a form of advice might be, hey, you know, consider running the activist playbook before someone runs it on you. I think that that would be, you know, potentially wise in this case. Um, I, well, I do I, think there's vulnerabilities. I, I, I... I could probably make an argument that there probably would be an activist here in the sense that you, when you look at kind of the nomination window on this thing, I think it was like mid-December to mid-January, which is atypical in the sense that like, I, I feel like, you know, oftentimes, you know, you know, investors or activists want to see kind of Q4 results and kind of the go forward outlook and, and then make a determination on submitting a slate, right? Like it's not very often you have to like submit a slate or, you know, get engaged before, you know, Q4 earnings, right. There's, you know, certain risk factors and things like that. And that's kind of unique to, to this company here. Um, if I think if this, if PayPal had a more kind of typical nomination window, which typically would overlap with Q4 earnings, you would have probably till early March to submit a slate. I mean, there's a very good chance to be uh, you know, an activist involved publicly right now. Um, but that's not the case. So, you know, I do think there are like actually quite a few very obvious kind of levers and potential vulnerabilities just from the governance. And yeah, you know, assuming there's an activist that would be interested in this and, and their, their levers to unlock value, um, it, it's not, uh, it, it's probably not a situation that, you know, the management team wants to be in, but. You know, I, it, it's certainly something, um, I mean, if 
I, I would put it this way. If, if, if I were in that world of activism, this seems like one of those names I should be spending time on because uh, to your point, not only is this business, you know, kind of gap, you know, have gap earnings or, or, you know, can, can generate a, a return, but you know, this isn't like a, a dynamic where, you know, only, only one or two CEOs can like, you know, run this asset. Um, you know, there, there are probably a lot of interested parties as far as like, you know, what they could potentially do with PayPal um, that, you know, are going to have certain uh, opinions on, on how to, you know, fix a business. Maybe some of them are right, maybe some of them are wrong, but, um, you know, like if, if you were to kind of submit a slate, like there are a few things you can address the, the disproportionate kind of comp um, hurdles, right? Like kind of the, the lower hurdle relative to expectations. You can probably make an argument that, you know, some directors really shouldn't even be on the board uh, for for various kind of um, uh, legacy reasons. Um, and and maybe, you know, I, you know, when I look at this board, it's you, you have folks that, I know they mentioned you know payments expertise, but you know, do we, do we really have the appropriate level of you know payments expertise on on this board to you know, offer oversight? I, I don't know. I mean, but you know, if, if an activist were to introduce a, a slate with a pretty compelling you know uh, uh, composition of of you know understanding of where where the puck is going and you know technologists and and so on and so forth, it becomes a very pretty you know, um, compelling case, uh, and I'm kind of shooting off the hip right now, but, um, you know, the, it is kind of one of those things for this year where it's kind of execute or you're probably come fall. This is, you know, I mean, the other compelling thing is you could probably put a lot of money to work on this thing, right? Like it's a large asset. Um, there's, there's, you know, if the valuations kind of persist at, at you know, uh, in a way that, you know, someone can raise potentially a lot of capital to go after it, you know, you know show me the incentive, I'll show the outcome, right? Like there's, there's someone's going to try that. Yeah, I, 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 I uh, hear uh, a lot of what you said, you know, of course, I've, we've, um, you know, we mostly are suggestivists behind the scenes. We've, uh, our, our fund has, you know, uh, done one proxy fight in one and, you know, settled another one with, uh, with good outcomes. And, you know, you know, my instinct here is that the, you know, this, this management team is sophisticated, is smart. They have good advisors. And, you know, my instinct would be is that they, they probably already understand, um, that it, there's time, it's time for, for some change. I'm, 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 I'm hopeful there. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if, uh, Jason or Elliot, you have, you have any thoughts on, on this angle? Well, I, I mean, I think generally just based on, you know, the, the discussions we've had before leading up to this, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I feel like we're at a point where, I mean, this is this is obviously a very valuable asset, very val valuable collection of assets. And, I mean, you get to a point where, you know, someone, someone's going to say or a collective is going to say, look, fix this or we're going to come in here and fix it for you. Um, I think... Uh, absolutely correct in the it's not like there's one or two people that, that could run this company I, i'm certain there are a lot of people out there with a lot of great ideas that would love the opportunity to to try to take this to the next level um so that that's that's again where i look at the you know you look at all of the challenges you understand that a lot of it is self-inflicted i mean steer that attention away from 
the M and A don't focus on that. There's such a cost to that strategy, and 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 you know organic growth and innovation just suffers so greatly. You don't see it at the moment, but when you look back over time, you recognize that it's just it's it's time and it's money that was that was just not invested correctly. So it it does feel like. It feels like one of those situations, given the state of the business, given given the size of the net worth, the value of the assets. I mean, the risk reward. I mean, looking at this just from an investor's perspective, it really does look like one of those risk reward scenarios for investors today. That it looks pretty darn attractive, but but I mean, it, it obviously comes with with some execution risks. Yeah, well said. And, you know, I'd say one of the things that irks me most uh, that Mike put on the table is this idea that the um, free cash flow CAGR target was less than one third that of the revenue target. Well, um, you know, the management team was talking about how much operating leverage is in the business. Well, you know, if your incentive is geared exactly the opposite way, you're probably not going to focus on and optimize for that target. And you could ask other questions about how much they should be investing in growth and whatnot. But, you know, that's the game they're publicly talking. Um, and they did, to a great degree, realize that, um, especially into COVID. And now some of it's reversing. But, um, you know, it would be nice to align the actual comp structure with where they say they should be going. And it's, you know, probably worth mentioning. mentioning. Um, I've viewed... John Rainey is a pretty key figure here, and it's hard to blame him for wanting to go to Walmart. Um, but, you know, that does uh, probably leave some of the investor community who's built a lot of trust in Rainey uh, some questions. You know, when Dan's been maybe at times a little loose with language, I recall after the Q4 2016 and early 2017 earnings report um, saying that they're near a partnership with Amazon and then within a few hours having to put out a release saying, no, actually, we're not. Like, you can't do those kinds of things. Um, so I think a lot of trust had been placed in the team in general. And there's reason to trust Dan, too. But I, th I think Rainey had been pretty critical on that. So right now they're looking for a new CFO, and they should be thinking about uh, some of these questions we're raising here. Um, maybe if, if any of you guys have any last uh, remarks in the formal part, uh, you know, go ahead. If not, we could uh, open it up to Q&A. So if you got questions, start building in the queue. I'll, I have uh, just two little other things I've kind of thought about. You know, I look, I think, I, I think, um, you know, operating excellence um, could matter an awful lot here. If, you know, with the, with the core checkout services, the additional volume and the core checkout services compounded over a couple of years. So staying away from kind of the merchant processing side um, and, you know, I'm ignoring kind of the mix on the core service, you know, there, there, there really ought to be some margin expansion. And if there's not, there ought to be a really good reason for it. It's a massive, massive de-risking component for shareholders. If we can get some margin expansion in that business uh, and significant margin expansion, and you would think, you know, payments is the kind of space that that, that should occur. It's wildly important shareholder is it de-risks the earnings growth compounded over time in a very very big way so i i, I do think you know i guess if, if i were to stereotype a bit about companies on the west coast companies that are focused on growth yes they're focused on innovation but they sometimes tend to do that uh, at, 
at the expense of 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 really kind of allowing uh, you know additional flow through on on revenue growth. You know, do I worry about that a bit here? So that that would be an interesting dynamic. You know, for you know a, re- a renewed focus on e- expansion of margins, especially if we kind of isolate for for mix issues. The other small thing I was gonna, well, two small things I was like, you know, you know, for if we are going to be uh, a, a, a lot less focused on M and A, um, we do have a good balance sheet. We're generating a lot of cash. You know, might this might this be time for share repurchases um, that are that are not done at any price to offset dilution? Um, that we're more opportunistic, and this is a very good price potentially um, to retire a significant amount of shares. That's interesting. You know, and the last little one I was going to mention, you know, that Jason brought up was, you know, um, you know, I have thought about are there any divestitures here, you know, and, and one that kind of potentially makes sense to me is, uh, you know, and I, I don't know if it's feasible because I don't know how deeply integrated it's become uh, now, but. Uh, Zoom to remitly for shares in the combined organization with the level of um, advertising spend that those two companies do together, um, I think could create, you know, a, a very much a winner in the digital remittance space. And, you know, that's a very interesting space kind of over time. Um, I, I also think it would be, you know, it's not it's not a huge deal, but it would also send a very strong signal to the investment community that the old playbook is, is potentially out. Um, you know, I, I, I do have, um, you know, we do have investment in Remitly as well. So fair disclosure there. I think the combination of those two businesses would, would potentially create a really nice uh, uh, winner in the digital remittance space. And you know, I've just, I bet that that one around as a, as a small one I've, I, I've thought about, but could also send some very good signals to the investment community. All right. Well said. So if there's anyone out there, I haven't seen anyone populate the queue with some questions. We'll maybe give it a minute. We have a couple minutes that we could, uh, you know, sit here and, and answer some questions. If not, you know, um, I'm sure uh, I, I hope I'm not speaking too freely for everyone, but we are all uh, willing to engage on Twitter. So if you want to bring the questions to the feed, by all means, uh, take it out there um, and appreciate you all for joining this. Um, this was pretty fun. Okay, uh, not seeing anyone there. You guys have any closing closing remarks? I'll I'll throw out um, tell us one kind of evangelizing, teaching folks about governance, uh, especially you know common sense stuff or things that you think are obvious, uh, but but isn't. Um, you know, one thing to think about here, and, and uh, maybe maybe well, I guess Mario too. I'm the only one that ever noticed this stuff. Um, you know, there's a director on on this board that's you know an ex icon person that I've brought on when you know Carl pushed for the spinoff of PayPal and you know if anyone knows anything about you know boardroom settlements and and activism there's usually some pretty you know clear language when it comes to you know when you know when you're allowed on the board and when you're supposed to go off on the board and you know whenever you see a situation where there seems to be a long time investor especially you know, an activist or former activist still on the board when, you know, maybe, you know, the firm is no longer engaged at the company or has shares, you, you should probably ask yourself, should they, should they be on that board? Because, you know, gee, you know, most of these agreements tend to have 
pretty, you know, uh, clear cut, um, if not ironclad, you know, requirements to step down. And, you know, it, it seems like kind of fickle or petty or, or, you know, not that big of a deal, but those sort of kind of like cut corners or just kind of ignore, um, you know, certain agreements tend to be a you know tip of the iceberg uh, as far as, you know, potential issues to spend time on. But, um, you know, that, consider that a little lesson as far as you should probably read, read up on the standstill agreements and, and understand, you know, or ask yourself, why, why is this person still on the board today? All right. That's all I got. All right. Very helpful for us. And that's a great observation. So, you know, I think uh, I'm not seeing any questions in here. I think uh, it's been a, it's been a good hour plus. Um, and uh, let's uh, I'll be in touch on the feed. Thank you everyone for joining. And thanks to my co-hosts that you, you guys could say a last word as well. Yeah. Thanks Elliot. Thanks Maria. Thanks Mike. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the time of the conversation and uh, yeah, getting, getting heads together on, on, investment ideas like this, it really feels like uh, we all get a little bit smarter in the process. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Yeah, I, I, uh, I enjoyed doing this. You know, we're doing it right, right ahead of earnings. I think all of us here don't really have a strong opinion. So, you know, if the stock's up a lot or down a lot next week, you know, I don't, I don't think that was the uh, idea here. It was kind of a multi-year look, a couple different views of, of things, but, you know, kind of with a, Ion, is this really a, is it, is there a nice opportunity here for the company to uh, kind of you know turn the page and you know ha- kind of head in a, in a new direction versus the uh, most recent past? So kind of a long term view, just to remind everyone there. And you know, thanks for setting this up, Elliot. Good seeing you, uh, uh, Jason and Mike as well. All right, with that, have a good one, everyone.